Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Hello, everyone. I just want to emphasize one of the announcements. Um, we really we we really love these august uh, nights of worship um it's part of how we look at the year we feel like our year begins in the fall that it begins in september and we want to give uh, nights of sacrifice of praise to the lord as we start our fall year fall season together this particular saturday coming up we have a special guest worship leader freddie washington but we also have a communion that we celebrate together and observe together. I always feel like God is particularly present during communion for physical healing. And so this will be a night of worship. It will be a night of communion. But I believe God will be present for physical healing. So if you want to come, be prayed for for healing, anointed with oil, want to bring people that need physical healing, this Saturday night would be a time to do that. We feel like there will be a time of presence uh, in the presence of the Lord, but it will be a time of healing as well. So please mark your calendar for that. Now, we've been doing a study in the book of Jeremiah. I originally planned for it to be eight weeks. I think it'll be about 14 after I finish or so, uh, maybe 15. I, I'm going to do this week, and then we'll finish up next week. But it, it has been so powerful for me personally that I just wanted to share with you the messages and the things that God has been doing in my heart through this book. Now, we come to one of the sort of an epic moment in the history of God's people in Judah, and it's chapters 37, 38, and 39. They're pretty long, so I'm not going to read them to you. Instead, I want to summarize it through the narrative. This is a narrative. It's a historical narrative. I want to summarize this for you. You can look it up later in chapters 37, 38, and 39. But what happens is um, uh, we're getting to a significant conflict, a significant clash that's coming about with the Babylonians choosing to invade and destroy Jerusalem. Now, the reason they're doing this is because uh, the king of Judah and the leaders of Judah have been nothing but a pain in Babylon's rear end kind of a thing. And they've had to come in numerous times and deal with problems. The first of the problems, uh, the king who followed Josiah, who was a good king, was Jehoiakim. He didn't last very long, and then he put his son Jehoiakim on the throne. And Jehoiakim was, was always trying to make allegiances against Babylon. So what happened early in his reign is Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim and moved him to Babylon, just took him off the throne, just dethroned him, deposed him, took him to Babylon, took another one of Josiah's sons, who was a weak person. And he took him and he made him his vassal. He made him, you know, his puppet, basically. But what we find is that when someone is weak, they can't be loyal. They can't even fulfill their own commitments and their own words. And Zedekiah was always trying to figure out what was best for Zedekiah. And so he knows that Jeremiah hears from the Lord. Because Jeremiah has predicted everything that has happened to this point. So what we find in this narrative are three interviews or three interactions between King Zedekiah, the puppet ruler, the weak one, and the man of God, the, the prophet of God, Jeremiah. Now, one of the things you're going to see, and I'm just going to lay it out right here, is he never wants to hear what Jeremiah has to say. He wants Jeremiah to say what he wants to hear. I, I really said that well, and only two of you... I need some help here. <laughs> so the first interview, he doesn't even go himself. He sends two of his leaders, a priest and an official, and they go and they, under the guise of pray for us. And Zedekiah is really trying to kind of seek out what, 
What is the Lord saying to Jeremiah? So what has happened is things have, have changed a little bit circumstantially. The Babylonians have come with an army to Jerusalem, but the Egyptians met them on the way and resisted them, and Babylon drew back. So Zedekiah thinks, hey, I could get out from under Nebuchadnezzar's reign if I align myself with Egypt. So he's going to Jeremiah, but all he wants to hear from Jeremiah is that this is a good idea, that this is going to do what he wants it to do. It's going to get him more power, more security, and all of this kind of thing. But see, Jeremiah cannot say what is not true. So he looks at these two officials who have come for prayer, and he says to them, fellows, no matter what you do, Babylon is going to destroy Jerusalem. The Egyptians are not going to protect us. They are not going to be able to stand against Babylon. Matter of fact, Jeremiah makes it so clear. He says, even if the whole army of Babylon is injured and they can't get out of their tents, they're still going to beat us. That's how clear he makes it, okay? So they leave. They go back to Zedekiah. Now the whole government is angry at Jeremiah. He's got the whole, you know, the whole royal officials and everybody's angry with him. And Jeremiah hears that his kinfolk are passing out the inheritance. So he says, you know, I need to go get my inheritance. He's a Benjamite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. So he says, I got to go to my village and get my inheritance. As he's going out the city gate, they stop him, they arrest him, and they claim that he's going to go and turn himself into the Babylonians, that he's committing treason. This guy by the name of Elijah. Though Jeremiah protests his innocence because everyone is so angry, they don't care if he's innocent. They just want to beat him. So they beat him. They imprison him. They take him to the house of the Secretary of State, Jonathan, and there they are planning to kill him. So he's waiting around. Then, guess what happens? Exactly what he says. The Babylonians come back. Now the city is under siege. There's, there's, there is a, a, a definite lack of political peace at this point. So guess who calls for Jeremiah? He says, Jeremiah, the king says to Jeremiah, do you have a word from the Lord? You see, he doesn't want a word from the Lord. He wants the Lord to say what he wants the Lord to say. But he says, do you have a word from the Lord? And Jeremiah says, you're going to be captured by the Babylonians. That's what's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then he goes, why are you throwing me in prison? I just keep telling you the truth, and you keep throwing me in prison. And so this time he pleads with the king not to send him back to the secretary of state because Jeremiah knows if he goes back, he's going to die. Now, part of this story get really, I think, uh, is attractive to me because... Jeremiah was my age. So he's about, he's, I'm 60, he was about 62. Zedekiah was probably 32, 33, somewhere in there. So you've got this, this older, experienced man of God, man who is a prophet of God, who has the word of God, and he's speaking to someone of great power, someone who has great authority over the land. He has the word, the other man has the power. But you see, the one with the power won't listen to the one with the word. And so what happens is the king keeps him in prison, again, because he doesn't like what he's saying. He keeps him in prison, but now he promises a loaf of bread a day. So he gets a loaf of bread every day until the siege takes place in such a way that there's no more bread to be had. So then the people are really, really angry. Okay, They're, they're super angry at this point. At Jeremiah. You see, they have no bread, they blame him. And so what happens is then this group of officials start hearing that Jeremiah is, you know, prophesying the Babylonians are going to take us. And he's telling the different people, you need to go ahead and surrender to this. You need to yield to this. It's going to happen. It's a certainty. You see, the prophetic word takes the future 
but it makes it as if it's already real in the present. So he knows this is going to happen. So he's saying, make your decisions accordingly. Go ahead and quit resisting this. Go ahead and submit to it. But the officials say, this is treason. You're lowering our morale. We want to fight. We want to beat those Babylonians. We want everybody in the, in the city. And so the king's son takes him to his house. And in his house, there is an old cistern, an old well. And he throws Jeremiah into the well. Again, I'm feeling it because I'm 60 years old and I can't imagine what it would be like to just have to live in a well. Still wet, still muddy, no food, no, no, no clothes that are clean, anything like that. And he's having to live and it's dark in there. What a horrible, awful thing for his health. Well, the, the, the point of it is they're not going to kill him. They're just going to let him die. And their thought is, if we, can, if we can kill him, we'll kill the message. If we can kill the messenger. You see, the problem is you can get rid of the messenger. You can stop listening to the message, but the truth never goes away. You know, your, fa your faith does not create truth. Your faith can only embrace what is true. It can't make something false true, and it can't make something true false. And so what happens is... They have put him in a place where they believe him to be forgotten. They have put him where no one can remember him, where no one can find him. The problem is that, you see, the Lord never forgets even those that the rest of us have forgotten. And so he calls out and assigns the rescue of Jeremiah to a very unique person. It's the only mention in this whole book of someone who is not of Judah or Babylon but this is a man who is an Ethiopian. He's an African. He doesn't look like the other people in the story. Doesn't come from the same culture. But this man has come to faith in the God of Israel. And in his faith, he has come to serve the king. As a matter of fact, his name probably was not Ebed-Melech, but that has become his name, which means he's a servant of the king. He's a, an official of the king. His faith, his status now has raised him to a place of, of a royal official. He takes that status and he takes his credibility and he risks it all to go and say, this is not right what you're doing to Jeremiah. Now, another part of this story that's so wonderful, he's the only one who does this in all of the stories. But he makes sure that he, when he brings this man out of his dungeon, out of his cistern, when he takes him out, he makes sure that he cushions the ropes for him. He makes sure that nothing that he does in rescuing him is going to hurt Jeremiah or cause more damage. I just want you to know if I'm ever thrown into a cistern, <laughs> I want you to treat me like Ebed Melech that was treated, treated Jeremiah. It's a beautiful part of the story. You see, you and I often think we're forgotten, but we're never forgotten. You could be in the darkest dungeon somewhere and God himself would send someone to rescue you because that's who he is and that's what he does. Now the third, are you tracking with me so far on this story? The third interview, <laughs> the third interview is one that's fascinating because now Zedekiah goes privately you know, every other move has been kind of indirect. Now, this third one, he goes right to Jeremiah, but he goes secretly to Jeremiah. Now, you can imagine, Jeremiah's like, I've talked to you twice. It didn't work out real well. I've been in prison, beaten, thrown into a cistern, left for dead, all manner of things. I'm not sure I want to talk to you again. As a matter of fact, he actually says, swear as the king that you're not going to let these people kill me or I won't talk to you. So then, again, remember, Zedekiah is always looking for the answer that he wants. He's not looking for the truth. And so Jeremiah says, it is a done deal. It is a certainty. Babylon will conquer this city. Babylon will destroy this people. The only way, he says, that you can stop it is if you will surrender now. You'll surrender yourself. Now, here is a perfect example of a government person or a, a political person who only cares about himself. He's like, 
No, I can't do that. They, there are people who have already gone before me who would kill me. They don't, you know, that I, I wouldn't be safe and all like that. And Jeremiah says, if you give yourself up to Nebuchadnezzar, you'll save our children. You'll save the women and the children in our city. You will save our city. And Zedekiah says, but I won't be able to save myself. You see, people have always been the same. This isn't something new where there's a self-serving politician or a, or a person who only thinks of their own advantage. Even among the people of God, the king who was on the throne didn't care about the women or the children or anybody else in the city. He only cared about himself. And so he shuts down and says, I will not do this. I'm too afraid. And he also says to Jeremiah, don't tell anyone we had this conversation. So Jeremiah is quizzed right after, and he keeps his word, and he says, I just talked to the king about freeing me from prison. When the Babylonians, I mean, all of everything Jeremiah says comes true. When the Babylonians breach the city and they enter into it, the first thing they do is they take Zedekiah, and they take him to Nebuchadnezzar in, a, in the village of Riblah, and there Nebuchadnezzar, the, the emperor of Babylon, says, this is your sentence, and he kills every son, every child of Zedekiah. Now, one of those sons that was killed was the one that put Jeremiah in the cistern, in the well. Now, hold that thought for a minute. The last thing that Zedekiah saw was the, was the complete destruction of his family. And then they took his eyesight, and he lived the rest of his life having only you know, the last sight being his family destroyed. And then the Babylonians burned down the entire city, burned all the houses. They destroyed the walls. They destroyed the, they destroyed the uh, temple itself. And what we find that's so interesting is, is his own people have hated Jeremiah. But Nebuchadnezzar goes and sends the captain of the guard to go find Jeremiah, pull him out from all the other refugees and all those who were being deported, and they, they, they clean him up, they give him everything he needs, they feed him, they treat him with honor. And Nebuchadnezzar makes an offer to Jeremiah. And he offers this, he says, you're a man of God, you are welcome in the city of Babylon, we will take care of you for the rest of your life. You'll be set up, you'll have a life of comfort, a life of luxury, and you will be honored and respected in Babylon. And he said, but if that's not what you want to do, then you are free to live in Jerusalem and to work in Jerusalem and do whatever you want to do because we respect and honor you. You can do whatever you choose to do. Now, you have to remember, Jerusalem is complete rubbles at, uh, rubble at this time. As a matter of fact, all that's left, everybody with any money is gone. Every educated person is gone. Every priest is gone. Every person of any status or significance has all been deported to Babylon. The only people left are the poorest, the most infirm, the most, you know, the people who Babylonians said had no value whatsoever. They're the only ones that left, that are left. I don't know about you, but that offer is a pretty tough one to pass up. Luxury apartment in Babylon versus stones and rubble and poor, helpless people in Jerusalem. And guess what? Jeremiah said, he said, God didn't tell me to go to Babylon. God called me to Jerusalem. And so he passes up luxury, comfort, and respect to live with people who could give him none of those. And he only did it because the Lord told him so. Are you hearing me? And we're only studying this book because he did what the Lord told him to do. Now, I want to give you two applications from the story. The first is this, as you begin to realize that there is really, in the scriptures, there is nothing more dangerous and there is nothing more tragic than a refusal to listen to the word of God. Listening to his word has everything to do with you reaching the destiny that you long for in your heart, but also that God longs for you to reach. As a matter of fact, we see here over and over again that the kings of Judah failed to listen to God's word. They actually, at one point, decide that 
if they can destroy the book of the word of God, they can destroy the message. So the king, Jehoiakim, takes the message that God himself told Jeremiah to write down. This is God himself writing through the prophet Jeremiah, speaking his words, not Jeremiah's words or interpretation, but, but the words of God. And the king takes those decrees and declarations and he pulls the pages out and he throws them into the fire. Having thrown away the the message and the words on the, on, the, on, the, on the parchment. Then he takes the man of God and throws him into a prison passively in some ways, trying to make sure that the one who had the word or spoke the word would die as well. Deuteronomy speaks about this in such a very, 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 very pointed way. Moses knew the day would come that his people would have a king. And so he speaks in Deuteronomy 17, and he says, here's the first agenda. Here's the first to do on the list for the new king. He is to take a pen, a quill, an ink. He's to take a piece of parchment or papyrus, whatever it might be. And then he is to write out the law of God for himself. He's to write out all the books of Moses for himself. Before he does any, before he looks at the treasury or before he sees his army, before he does anything, Moses said, write out for yourself the word and the law of the Lord. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you're typing, you don't always remember what you type. Especially if you cut and paste or you copy and paste, whatever it might be. It just kind of goes in and goes out. But when you longhand, when you take with your own hand and you write out something, it triggers a different part of the brain. There's a, a way that that comes into you that is very different from your computer or, or copy, and especially different than when someone else does it for you. And so what the king wants to do was to write out his own scriptures that he would daily refer to in his devotionals. And everything that he did as a king was to be directed by the word of God, the heart of God, the will of God, before he made any decisions or used his power in any way. Do you understand what God is saying here? He is saying that you cannot have prosperity. You cannot be all that you can be unless you can learn to listen. And what you listen to will make all the difference in the world. If you're able to listen to the law of God, the word of God, the will of God, it will make you so much more you and so much more effective as you than any person who just speaks without listening or acts without listening. When I was a, a young pastor, I read a book by Watchman Nee called The Servant of the Lord. The very first chapter of that book, and it's about how do you minister, how do you, how do you, how do you pastor, how do you live as, as a, in ministry. In the very first chapter that just changed my world is it said you cannot be an effective servant of the Lord if you cannot listen. Now most seminaries we teach to talk, we don't teach to listen. We teach to preach, we don't teach to hear. And so what, what, I, what I've gathered from that has, has, has been the foundation of everything I've done in ministry since that time. And he says listening it boils down to three things. He says you hear what people are saying then you hear what they are not saying. And then you hear what the Spirit is saying. All right, now, you guys are either not listening or dead. I'm not sure. Okay, so let's hear it. You want to hear it again? You hear what people are saying. Okay, sometimes you hear more by what people are not saying. And then you hear what the Spirit is saying. Okay, so repeat it with me, okay? We'll see if you're listening. I'll say it first. Hear what people are saying. Hear what they are not saying. Hear what the Spirit is saying. All right, so if that's listening for ministry or listening to actually love and take care of people, how much more so is this true of listening to God? 
Think about this. Every word of Scripture, every word of the Bible is what God is saying. Every word is true. Every promise is yes and amen. So when you are listening to the Bible, you are listening to what He has said. But here's the thing. Is God often speaks very loudly in silence. There are times when you feel like you can't hear him. There are times when you feel like he's not saying anything. Do you know what that usually means? You weren't listening to begin with. And he stops talking. Because he's not going to waste words on somebody who will not listen. And he will be silent until you, you gather it. In, I've not been listening. And usually that happens <laughs> when you fail. When you do something and you go, how did I get here? Why did I choose this husband? Or why did I choose that job? Or why did I do that? And then you'll realize, oh, I stopped listening. I stopped listening. You see, our God is a master teacher. And a master teacher doesn't waste words. When there are people who are disinclined to listen, he gives them the space to realize how destructive their desires are. How lacking in wisdom they are. He will not force you to do always what you don't want to do. He will allow you to do it so you can see how stupid you really are. You are so evil, Christ had to die for you. But you are so loved that he chose to die for you. But you are that stupid, and I am that stupid. Nobody in this room has ever hurt me as much as me. And what's fascinating to me is how when I've made these dumb decisions, I want to blame God. I've heard so many times, why did God let me do that? Why didn't God stop me? Because you weren't listening. I had a young man that I really cared for very deeply, met him when he was in college, and, and uh, um, he became a drug addict while he was in college. And he ended up in prison, and his dad asked if I'd go have a Bible study with him in prison. So every week, I'd drive up to his prison and have Bible study. And God met him very powerfully in the prison. And he began to grow, and he began to really move forward in discipleship. And he got real excited, went back to his hometown, which was in South Georgia, and got involved in doing evangelism, got into a, a pretty lively church, and good things were happening. So I was keeping up with him because he was pretty far away from me, but I was calling him. And I call him up one day, and he goes, Mike, I got a great job. And I'm like, really? Something about it just didn't strike me right. And he goes, yeah, I got a job at a restaurant, and it's all the alcohol I can drink. <laughs> I was like, that's not a good job. And I'll tell you why. It's because his trigger for cocaine was alcohol. I, I would see it sometimes if he just had a little bit of beer, he would want cocaine. And I told him, of course I told him. You know I told him. I said, That's, that job is not a gift from God. It's from the other team. And you're being deceived, and you need to say no to that job. And he, he said, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. The Lord is with me. The Lord gave me this job. Within a very short amount of time, he uh, went on a binge, stole money, stole a car, ended up in jail again. And then, do you know what he said? Why didn't God stop me? Why did God let me do this? And I said, we were all telling you not to do this. But you had to see the consequences of what you wanted and the decisions. And you had to see how little you listened. Well, he ended up becoming a very successful lawyer, had a wife, kids, because he stopped being someone who refused to listen. And God redeemed his life. And part of it was he's got, he began to say, 
It wasn't about God stopping me. It was about me not listening. Are you tracking with me today? Well, in Old Testament history, as painful as it is, God more often than not shows a different scenario that would have happened if they had listened. But the disobedience of the leaders of the people led to tragic circumstances. In Joshua 1.8, God makes this really clear. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You understand he's speaking to leaders. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. But lest you think God's just this cosmic killjoy who just wants to be a sheriff that throws you in jail, look at what happens if you begin to delight in the law of God. You will, he, he says, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The result of God's word in you, listening to his word, is that you will prosper. You'll have success. Psalm 1, David says it so clearly. He says, you know, blessed is the man. He's, he talks about being planted by a stream of water that, that you get to have, you know, harvest in every season. But what does he say is the condition of that? He says, the delight of your heart is in the law of God. And on God's law, you meditate day and night. Now, I want you to track with me in this. This, this could be helpful to you. Is it's really clear that God obviously understood psychology before there were psychologists. But what we've come to understand is that your brain has a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere, and that they are very they're different. And some of us are very developed in our left hemisphere, and some of us are more developed in our right hemisphere. So the left side is more analytical, it's critical thinking. It's very cognitive-oriented. It's where kind of the knowledge and facts and info reside. And many people are very, very developed there. They're academically developed, intellectually developed, but not so developed on the right side. And then there are other people that are very intuitive, they're very creative, and, and maybe not so great academically or not such critical thinker in a way, but they have a certain street smarts because they've been trained by their fear, they've been trained by emotion and other things. But that right hemisphere is a place of creativity, it's a place of intuition. So now, most of us are not very developed in the two together, and the two sides don't often communicate well. And so what we have is people that are all cognitive sometimes, and you have people that are all sentimental, and we make fun of each other kind of a thing. You know, you have no heart, well, you have, you know, you have no mind kind of a thing. Uh, some people always say, I think, and others will say, well, I feel. And so the issue, though, is that as Christians, sometimes we have emphasized one side over the other. Like a friend of mine uh, recently said to me that she was suicidal. And her pastor said to her, well, just memorize a book of the Bible each month and you'll be okay well her pain her suffering her despair is not in her critical thinking it's in her right hemisphere where her memories are and her pain resides but memorizing scripture is a left brain activity so here you got all this pain and you're memorizing the scriptures and they're not speaking to one another and they're not touching one another and so the pain continues, and oftentimes the person who has a lot of pain can't memorize anything anyway. And so now they feel guilty because they didn't memorize more scripture. I mean, I don't know about you, but all my scripture memorization is in King James. So I go, thou, thee, thine, and all those kind of things. You know, hast thou, and all that. And what is meditation, though? I believe meditation is when the left side speaks to the right side and the right side speaks to the left side. Where the word of God dwells in you richly in such a way that it speaks to your pain and your memories and it speaks to your hurts. And you don't just, you don't just read it, you start to feel it. You start to encounter it. It becomes living. It becomes active. It begins to be the truth through which all other events in your life are seen. You see, you get the choice whether 
you'll see God through your circumstances or you'll see your circumstances through God. In a way, this is what listening is. Meditating is a form of listening to God. It's taking what he said, it's being careful about what he hasn't said, but it's allowing yourself to experience what the Spirit has to say. See, his word is always true, but there is a need in our hearts, there's a need for the Spirit to connect the word, to connect a communication between your left hemisphere and your right hemisphere. That's why a lot of times, if you think about it, God has called us into things that have touch or taste or feel. That's why communion is so important. There's the truth of communion. Here is Christ crucified for us. That's a, that's a historical reality. But when you eat, something triggers the other side. And you begin to realize, he wanted me to taste this. He wanted me to touch this. He wanted me to see this. Because he wanted his sacrifice to get into the place where I feel forgotten where I feel in the cistern, where I feel like I've been, you know, life has been trying to kill me. And so what's really going on here is that God doesn't just want you to hear it. He wants you to process it in such a way that his thoughts begin to be your thoughts so that when you encounter things, you already know how God sees that thing. But not only to see it, but also to feel it, to to have a hunger for God in God's own way. The first work of the Holy Spirit in anybody's life is to give you hunger for God. See, other people hunger for what God can do. But they want God to be a mystic. You want him to be a, a psychic. They want him to be a medium who will say, oh, you're about to meet a tall, dark stranger, or you're about to have a romance of your life, or you're going to come into the winning numbers of the lottery when you break into the fortune cookie at your Chinese restaurant. <laughs> you see, but God's never going to do that. Because what he's wanting is for you to understand his heart and to have a hunger for him in his way. Jesus said it this way, that what's going on in our heads and the junk and the distractions and all the things that are happening in our heads have to be sanctified by his truth. They have to be made holy. They have to be cleansed. The truth has to come in there and, and completely begin to cleanse all the ways that you've thought in the past so that his word, his truth becomes your word, your truth. Are you hearing me? I think you are, but you guys have an interesting way of responding today. I feel like this is going deep into you. Are you here? Is that true? All right. So the second application is this. This passage shows us God is incredibly patient. Now, think through this with me. If right now my words are convicting you, and you're having some sorrow over the fact you haven't listened to God, but it's leading you to change and say, I, I, I'm having a longing, I'm having a hunger for the Word of God, for the work of God in my life, then that's the Holy Spirit. But if the words are coming in and you're feeling judged and you're feeling condemned, and all you can do is look at your past and feel regret then that's the enemy of your soul. See, the exact same words coming to you have to go through a, a grid before they get to those deeper places in your consciousness. There's a grid there, and the grid can be a grid of, yes, Lord, I love to repent. Yes, Lord, when you show me something, I want to change. And instead of feeling beaten down and beaten up, you start having hope that there's a future for you. But when the enemy is the grid, then anything that points out where your deficit becomes something you become defensive about. It becomes something in that, that you're going, oh, this judges me. Oh, I feel condemned. You see, the truth of God has to go through a grid to get to you. And that grid is either your grid of openness and freedom and your ability to sorrow over the sins in your life so that there's a sweetness to repentance. Or the grid is still a demonic grid that says everybody's against you. Nobody understands you. 
Everybody's hard on you. You're never good enough. You're never enough. See, one of the ways to beat that grid is this. You aren't good enough. Quit fighting it. I mean, if you were good enough, you wouldn't need a Savior. I mean, if you were good enough, there would be no need for a cross. You suck. It's in Hebrew. I, I you know. I mean, until you can just realize that, you'll keep propping up all of this stuff with defenses and neuroses and everything else. It's when you, be, you just realize, wait a minute. You know? God can speak to these broken places in my life because he's not speaking condemnation. He's speaking transformation. But if I won't reveal what needs to be healed, I won't be healed. Because it is a cooperative thing. Notice, listening cannot be forced on anyone. Listening is a choice. And choosing not to listen is a choice that a lot of people make. But he is so incredibly patient. As a matter of fact, this story of what we're reading the end of actually unfolds over 140 years. He has again and again treated them with patience. But they have looked at his patience as a weakness. And they have become complacent. I see people all the time, it's so funny, who are either religious or around religion or whatever it might be. And they're like, well, I didn't get hit by a lightning bolt. It must be okay. You know? And so instead of realizing that what they're doing is destructive, God doesn't have to give you a lightning bolt. Your own choices will create the sufficient punishment for what you've done. He doesn't have to give extra punishment. He lets the natural consequences of your choices play out. But he's so patient and loving that he's doing it so you will see that not only is he all you need, but he's really all you want. Because in a very real way, obedience can only really come if you want to do it, not because you have to do it. Ask any parent that. God is incredibly forbearing. As a matter of fact, Paul says, the earth underneath you, the trees, the stars, all of them are just groaning for this to be over. But God says, no, wait, stars, wait, sun, wait, seas, wait, wait, because I am bringing my people to myself. And Peter says it this way, God's delay is his yearning that people would be saved. The more I study the Old Testament, I realize this, and it's there on every page, that you can have the law and the prophets and it's still not enough to save anyone. This isn't about religion. Formal religion will never get you there. This isn't about any hope that you can have in morality. I hear people all the time, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try better. Stop it. There is no hope in this. Have you, have you not noticed that you don't have willpower for 24 hours a day? Man, through, uh, through my friend Lena here, I learned how to eat better. I lost weight. I felt like 100% better. When Lisa got sick, there are certain things that she's been eating that were easier on her stomach that we weren't eating. You know, and, and, and as, you know, we've been going through this thing with her cancer and stuff, we've had stuff around the house we used to not have, you know. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I got it for her. And, you know, I've been saying, oh, you know, this summer I was like, I want to lose weight. I want to do this. I want to do that. Do you know what at 10 o'clock tastes really good? A whole bag of potato chips. <laughs> I'm talking about a family-sized bag. I mean, it doesn't taste good the next morning. It doesn't feel good the next morning. But I'm sitting there with that bag of potato chips going, oh, that would taste so good right now. And I deserve it. I had a hard day, you know. And I don't just need three musketeers. I get six musketeers, you know. I'm, I'm telling you, that's not even morality. That's not even an immoral thing, and I can't resist it. How much more, friends, 
is it an issue when it actually is about your morality? When it actually is choices that have to do with things that are deeper than simply whether I'm going to eat a potato chip or I'm going to eat a candy bar. You need a Savior. And the judgment of God is never the last word of God. Hope is always the last word of God. He made a new covenant with us. He made the covenant. He kept the covenant. And now he wants to give you the benefits of that covenant. But you have to give him access. It's not saying, Lord, I'll do better. No, it's realizing, Lord, I can't do it. But you've already done it. And by faith, I can receive what you've done. Jeremiah is really what I would call a type of Christ or a forerunner of Christ. Here is a man who gave the word of God and was utterly and completely rejected and they wanted to kill him. The difference in the two stories is this. Jeremiah was never forgotten and God actually punished the guilty in this story. The one who put him in the cistern is dead. He was destroyed. But in the story of Jesus, which is the most unique story in all of time, it's not the guilty who die, it's the innocent one who dies. You see, you and I needed a substitute. We needed someone who was innocent who would take our guilt. Someone who would be treated like I deserve or like you deserve so that now you can be treated like he deserves. Jesus is the only one who's ever been truly innocent. And he was willing to die so that he who knew no sin could become sin for you. So that now you might not only have a right standing with God, but you become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. I want to finish up with this aspect. <laughs> not only was Jeremiah a type of Christ, but Isaiah was as well. The prophet Isaiah kept speaking the word of God and the king got madder and madder and chose to, want, you know, to kill Isaiah. So Isaiah took off and ran and hid and he found a hollow of a tree. And the king found him in the hollow of the tree and sawed the tree in half and sawed Isaiah in half. But it was a picture, wasn't it? Here this innocent prophet speaking the word of God killed because he was faithful to God and killed by an unfaithful king. It was a picture of what Paul says in Galatians 3. It says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Bible says Jesus has redeemed you from the curse or the punishment or the penalty of the law by becoming a curse for you. It's amazing that Isaiah had that kind of courage and that kind of life, but he didn't die for you. But Jesus, the innocent one, took your place, took my place. So that what I deserve, he received. And now what he deserves, I receive. Will you stand with me? Are you just tired? I did all the work. Are you tracking with me today? Can I just, can I tell you this? I never share with you anything that I haven't processed myself. This is such a powerful, simple message. Failure to listen is failure to live the life to the fullest that God has for you. Even when you don't listen, he's still amazingly patient. Do you know what the word for patience in the Bible is? You might know this, but it's long suffering. So every time you don't listen, he suffers long while you're not listening. He continues to suffer when you disobey. He's willing to continue to do so because he loves you so much that he will let you discover how stupid you really are so that you'll come to know how wonderful he really is. Would you bow your head with me? I have this picture. Many of us have done this before, but I just feel like it would be good to do it today, together again, out loud. Jesus wants to save you from yourself. He wants to save you from the places you haven't listened. God has suffered long, but God longs to take your suffering away. 
So I'm going to ask you to do two things. I'm going to ask you to say out loud with me that you receive him as the Savior. That's to, admi that's to admit you need a Savior. Now, if you're not there yet, he's, he's trying to develop a hunger in you. The Spirit is at work in our midst. But I would like you to say these words with me. Even if you've done it before, I just think it's a powerful statement. Lord, I receive you, Lord, I receive you. As, my savior. as my Savior. It's a very personal thing that you're doing. Now, the second thing is this. Would you picture that innermost place, like the command center of your life? Some call it the heart, the soul. But it's the command center. And would you picture that in the, middle of the, in the middle of that place where you really believe things and where you really commit to things, in the center of that place, there's a throne. And what I want to ask you to do today, would you dethrone yourself, your agenda? Would you dethrone anybody else? And would you invite the Lord of glory to sit on your throne? Will you say that with me? Lord, I invite you to sit on the throne of my heart. I dethrone myself and anything else. You are the king of my heart. I will listen. See, the question today is, are you more Jeremiah or Zedekiah? Zedekiah was a fool. Even when he saw what was happening, he thought he could protect himself. Instead, he ended up ruining a whole city, a whole nation. But Jeremiah, even when he was offered luxury, said, no, the Lord has not said that. I really believe, friends, God is always speaking. His word is always there for you, but even more than that, the Spirit himself wants you to feel and experience the voice of your Savior. But for that to really be clear, you have to dethrone other voices and listen to the voice of the Lord. Now, if today you've said those words with me, you said, Lord, I make you my Savior, I make you the King of the throne of my heart. The Bible says that, that that creates a situation where the Spirit of God comes and makes you born again. Born of above. Born of the Spirit. Paul says it makes you a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. Sometimes you feel it like, like you're a newborn baby. Sometimes you feel very little, but there's just a sense of transfer. Adopted children receive their status long before they feel their identity. You have, if you have been serious today, you have received a new status. If this was the first time you ever did that or first time it was real to you, please speak about that to someone. Testify. Tell them this has happened for you. Lord, we seal what you're doing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. God bless you.